Thank you, Peter, for being here, and thank you for producing a book uh, with, I think, the spunkiest title of any book that I've read this year, The Worldwide Wreck of Tech and How to Make the Net Work. Uh, this is a uh, terrific tour de force uh, through a whole lot of debates around how we deal with technology, delving back through the history of uh, the internet in Australia, uh, and considering some of the lively debates around how technology can make our lives better or worse. Uh, but Peter, like me, is a member of Generation X, the, uh, the last generation, as he puts it, to grow up in analogue Australia. So, Peter, isn't this just the last cry of a grumpy old generation who are seeing the world uh, change but, uh, but can't adapt quick, en quick enough? On one reading, yes. Um, but I think there is something more profound than just a grumpy old man railing against the fading of the light, as it were. Um, my starting premise is that my generation lived through this incredible technological change which promised to transform the world. It was radically collaboratively, collaborative. It, it was built on principles of open source um, where the value that somebody was worth in the system was defined by what they put in rather than what they took out. And I totally swallowed it up and I structured my working life for 20 years around finding ways of making the technology work for me and work for the causes I believed in. And if the world was on this path to being a more collaborative and um, cooperative and positive place at the moment, I'd be saying, you know, our work is done. Go forth technology and do your business. But I feel that that's not where we are at the moment. I, 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 I narrow it down to what I call the four Ds. Um, I think the technology has made us more distracted than ever before. We're drowning in information overload. Um, and if it's bad for us, you should see what's happening to the next generation. And bringing up children in a world where there is hyper-connectivity, you can just see them drowning for a, 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 a space where they can actually exist as people. Um, second D is denial. We can't actually get our act together to the extent to um, come up with basic agreed truths so that we can deal with existential challenges to our future mm -hmm. as a species. Climate change. Um, Anna Maria, who's in the room tonight, chapter 10, I write around her story of, of, of being an advocate for scientists through those years of the climate wars and how the technology was, was used as a way of reinforcing prejudice and ignorance rather than one of bringing together and finding a common ground. Um, the third D division, the world globally is becoming more divided and democracy is not, is not um, flourishing in that environment. And finally, the one the most concerning displacement, the model of the big tech companies now is basically to harvest our data to, yes, sell things to us, but also to shape our desires and shape our behaviours and ultimately, I, I fear, replace us um, as people in, work, in, in the economy. And all these, all these things aren't inevitable, but it's the path that appears to me we're on. So I guess part of the purpose of this book is not just to be a grumpy old guy, but to be a grown up and say, wow, these changes are occurring. Let's take stock of it, be mindful of it before it rolls over the top of us. So to use a fifth D, that's a fairly dystopian vision that you paint. But yeah. there was a, a, a much more 
utopian moment when you first got engaged in, in tech. Tell us about the story of Workers Online yeah. and, uh, and what you did there. So my, um, I was a traditional newspaper journalist working on the Daily Telegraph running um, industrial relations for a number of years and I loved tabloid journalism, I loved being a reporter on the beat. Um, it was back in the days where the Telegraph actually editorialised, the only paper in Australia that editorialised for Keating's return in 96. Um, times have changed. Um, I worked for a short time in politics and then I ended up working the union movement in the late 90s. And it was this moment where um, the technology was just coming on board and there were it, people were starting to build websites and sort of put... We were at the point where we were... Um, had a website and we could put a media release online instead of just faxing it out and it seemed to mm. be this transformative technology. And I remember having a discussion with one of the guys in the U movement um, saying, the problem is that we put the media releases up there but no one's reporting on them. He said, well, why don't you just run your own stories and forget that they're a media release and turn them into an actual piece of news? And it was this sort of gotcha moment and we said, oh, yeah, we can actually publish our own newspaper like the unions did in the 1890s when, you know, Henry Lawson and, yes. you know, Banjo Patterson worked for the worker and I um, thought, wow, we can reinvent the world and build our own little workers' newspaper and guess what? It's not going to cost any money at all. It just takes energy um, and connectivity across the movement. So we had, we, we basically got a group of um, people that were working in unions trying to run the communications, said let's all get our act together, let's share our stories, let's create our own hub. And what was really interesting with the experience of Workers Online is once the stories became news, the mainstream press, the old media, started following it because it was no longer a pitch to create a story. It was a story in itself. Um, so that's a very specific personal story. But I guess the, the broader point was in those early days of the internet, there was no one stopping you doing what you wanted to do. You could create anything you wanted um, and there was no... There was no sort of um, hidden costs involved. It was purely, if I want to make something happen, I can do it, and if it works, it's great. If it doesn't, I'll go and try something else. And that was exhilarating. And it wasn't just you who was taking advantage of the technology. You tell the stories in the book of some of my favourite internet pioneers, people like Stephen Main, Kate Lundy, uh, Evan Thornley. What do we learn about those early Australian uh, internet pioneers so um, I, the potential of the web? Yeah. I, I still am trying to work out in my head whether it was a particular moment in time, the pilgrims going into the new open country so there was nothing there so you could fill it up with your own great idea and whether kids today can do the same thing on corporate social platforms. I suspect not. So, um, spoiler alert, if you buy the book, it's basically just a bunch of stories of people I know and the way they, they live through this journey that I live through. But um, Stephen Main's a classic. He just subverted the whole way um, business and finance was reported in Australia by turning it into a show and broadcasting it himself and going to shareholder meetings and making a noise and then sending it out saying, this is what I just did. Evan Thornley um, was way more successful than any of us. He um, came up with one of the earliest search engines um, and he made the really strategic decision that he wouldn't search for porn because he thought that was immoral and guess what? He ended up being the search engine that Microsoft built and his company looks smart was worth at one stage a billion dollars. Um, there was a tech wreck, but he walked away um, with a serious fortune based on taking a really moral stance in the way the web developed. And then, of course, Kate Lundy, who was Canberra's senator for many years, was one of the early um, 
champions in the federal parliament of um, technology and what it could be and what it could become. And um, I talked to her a lot about what was going on inside the halls of power in those early years of the internet, and the answer was not much. There was a point at which <coughs> politicians didn't have access to the internet because that's what the admin people did. Um, but she ended up playing a pretty leading role in developing the sadly failed Knowledge Nation strategy, which was probably the moment where Australia could have had a different story about the sort of tech industry we developed. Instead, we decided the mining boom would be good enough <laughs> for a national economy. You talk also in the book about the importance of capturing value at the point of creation too. Uh, tell us a little bit more about that, that notion and how potentially you see that as having been undermined. Well, I think the problem we've got now is that the business model for what... So a whole bunch of companies came along to fill up the empty wastelands that we'd been going on like pilgrims and some of them mm. built networks and then they had to determine at some point the business model said we've got to find a making, way of making money out of it. I think it's intriguing that we thought that this would be a pursuit that would necessarily lead to big companies making money and I think it's also intriguing that the technology arrived just at the, as the Cold War had kind of ended and there was the triumph of capitalism <coughs> and that, that turned into a reading of history as being a triumph of libertarianism and then neo-libertarianism. And Australia sort of was part of that story, not to the same extent, because we had a Labor government guiding us through that period. But it was very true that by the time the internet came along, the assumption was the only role of government was to get out of the way um, and and to connect people as fast as possible so that they would have the lib lib mm. liberation of being connected. Um, I think that the change in the world now is the price of entry has totally changed and we still think we're on this free platform but we're actually part of a transaction which I don't think we've quite thought through fully. You talk about the early 2000s as being the lost years for the Australian IT sector. Mm. Why is that? Well, that was a reflection on the discussion with Kate and I think a couple of things were going on at the same time. Telstra could have driven... Um, Australia's, you know, adapt, adaptation of this technology. Mm. It chose instead to strip back all its costs and just get as high a share price as it could when it privatised under the Howard government. Um, but I think more profoundly through those lost years, we, we fell into the trap of just saying connectivity was an end in itself and not thinking through mm. all the implications along the way, what the future was going to look like. And I... You know, in a way, I feel that the technology was so exciting and so transformative that it was almost like you can't put rings around it in case it didn't. It wasn't as shiny as it could be, and it was not fashionable to talk about any sort of constraint on the internet. You know, to his credit, um, Richard Alston tried to bring in levels of censorship on content in the late 90s, but he got howled down for the left for opposing free speech. And I think, you know, we're, we're in a similar moment now where a number of world leaders, including Scott Morrison, are starting to talk about whether there should be limits on what, what Facebook... Um, mm. and, and Facebook will say, oh, no, we're, um, we're a platform, not a publisher, and Google will say, oh, no, we can't be responsible for what comes through a search engine because, you know, we're just... You know, we're just a tool. But ultimately, um, 
These are <laughs> giant global corporations who are building their wealth with no real um, sense of the um, implications of the operation of their businesses. And traditionally, that's where government steps in at mm. a local level or at an international level. In terms of the building of communities, though, one of the great successes of the web has been linking up people who are not who are geographically dispersed. Yeah. Um, so, if you're a transgender person living in a small rural community, then the promise of connectivity has been realised in some sense. You've, you're able to to reach out and engage with a group of people who mm. uh, potentially have you feeling that you're not as unusual as your neighbours might make you feel. Uh, do you think that promise has been, been realised, the promise of recognising so, diversity and, and uh, among unusual groups, whether it's being transgender in Burke or a stamp, a stamp collector in Collector? I think it's a... I, this is not a book against technology and the connections that it can facilitate are transformative and profound, as you point out. My concern is that more and more of the connections to me seem to be with the technology rather than through the technology with other people. So the way that, um, particularly on the social media platforms, it's not about finding people like you, it's just finding people and getting a bigger basis of friends and getting the impulses of good feelings when something is liked or shared mm. um, to the detriment of human interaction. And I suspect that there is a way through where there are link-ups to people in the real world and technology is a way of bringing people together, not just becoming a substitute for those sorts of connections. Where do you see that as working best? Oh, look, I, in my book I talk about some of the examples where it's worked well in my work, particularly um, through one of the platforms we created um, for parents whose kids have disabilities, um, campaigning for a national disability insurance scheme. The Every Australian Counts platform started off being a bit of a political advocacy network but has actually become mm. a bit more of a support group and in information sharing and some people use Facebook, some people share emails, people turn up to real life events but I think the interesting part about the application of that technology is it's the people at the point of the exercise rather than the accumulation of data or the um, relationship with the technology and the person. Mm. And GetUp seems to do a little bit of that as well. It's largely collectivism, but also getting groups to physically together in people's lounge rooms or encouraging people to go along to, to yeah. events or contact... I think the interesting work GetUp did during the federal election campaign, of course, they were spectacularly unsuccessful in the election, so they're looking back on their tactics, but getting people to phone up and have human conversations. So the platform was mm. used to create um, a capability that people who were supporters could get a list of phone numbers and ring up and talk to other people. Like, that is... That, that, that kind of, I think, fits the model of um, network technology in its best sense as opposed to what I think we've got now, which is more like a... Not so much a network, but just, you know, a whole ecosystem that we're stuck inside. Yes. Now, you're a market researcher and there's lots of lovely... Uh, tidbits there from various surveys you've done. One of my favourites is when you ask people about groups. Uh, you've got a statistic, 46% of people say they don't like joining groups, 60% say that others don't like joining groups, uh, and 64% say the decline in group joining has been a bad development. Uh, <laughs> 
could we use the concept of social proof here? Wouldn't it be useful to tell people that actually only 46% of people don't like joining groups, therefore a majority of people do like joining groups? Should we, tell, should we be publicising it to people that way? You think I'm, I'm, I'm running the negative um, strain on that? I well, think, I, think well people, I think people are more dour on... They, they think that others have a more dour view of group joining than, in fact, they do. Yeah. I know you wrote a fantastic book about um, the disconnection of the Australian society a few years ago as well, which um, I, I found a really useful anchor point. So, numerically, social institutions, as they existed in my childhood, have kind of they're in decline or they mm. don't exist anymore. Mm. And it's not just the churches and the unions, it was the progress associations, the Chamber yes. of Commerce, the ecosystem of society that meant that it wasn't just relying on opinion polls to tell people what was going on. Um, now, to create those groups actually takes energy. It, it, it takes connectivity, mm. but more importantly, it takes energy. In your book, you talk about the transformative... Um, radical idea of having street parties where you get to know your neighbourhood, which is a really, you know, that requires somebody to go out and make the initiative. Likewise, I think a lot of these structures that sort of dominated the industrial era and are in decline now were um, products of people having the time and the energy to want to be part of a community because there is a mutual self-interest in being around other people. The concern is that a lot of the things that the social networks offer feel a bit like that sort of community, but it's different and it's easy and it's transitory and it's got a whole bunch of feel-good impulses built in to make you want to be there longer. Mm. But is it actually the same thing or is it, a, is it like a lot of technology? It's kind of the same, but it's a lot cheaper and a lot easier, so it'll do. And I think without those human structures, we do end up feeling more alone, even if we are on our devices, wishing somebody happy birthday on an automated prompt because someone, the algorithm, told us to. Yes, yes. Uh, quick plug for street parties. They are incredibly easy to organise if you want to organise your street Christmas party. Canberra's uh, made for them, aren't they, with the cul-de-sacs? Well, we've done it every year for at least a decade now. Um, we keep on thinking maybe we should give it to one of our neighbours, but actually getting last year's invitation changing the date and time and just photocopying a bunch of them, putting in 20 letterboxes, turns out to be almost no work and a great way of catching our neighbours for, uh, for Christmas. Um, but uh, to what extent can Facebook be used for that? I mean, it's one of the things that Zuckerberg has been sort of patting himself on the back for, the, uh, the number of community groups, uh, particularly around things like rare diseases, for example, where through Facebook... Uh, people with diverse interests, or people with uh, niche interests have been brought together. Um, should, should we be celebrating that a little more than you do in the book? What I don't get is why there has to be the cost of entry that exists as it does. It, like, if, if this is a network that's been created for people to connect on and create energy out of, which is great... Why does there have to be the extra part of the story, which is, and every interaction is going to be captured and stored, and we've got smart people working out ways of monetizing it, and we're going to create a world where you get more of what we know you've already liked. And so I think there is the internet offers this amazing space to create a public square, but what I question is, why does it have to be a shopping mall where... Yes there is actually a price to get in. Um, so, again, 
it's not that the technology is bad. I just feel that we've reached this point where a whole bunch of companies came in and applied it over the top of its founding principles, which was open source collaborative. Mm. And in their place, there are a whole bunch of problematic business things going on over the top, all in the name of effectively a legal terra nullius. Like, you, we, we are new. You, there are no rules to say we can't do this, so we're just going to do it. And even since you wrote your book, we've now got Facebook Libra, the, uh, the notion that Facebook may well step into an area that we have traditionally thought of as exclusively the province of government, of, of issuing a currency, um, what that means for our ability to manage the economy through a recession is, uh, is something I think policymakers are still trying to figure out. And, uh, and it's interesting, isn't it? It's not as if, and everyone goes, oh, Facebook's really, really powerful. But Facebook's really, really powerful because everyone chooses to participate mm. on mm. that network. And, you know, I'm not saying the government should go and build a separate social network or that there should be a different network, but I am saying that the power that is derived by choices we make, and it's only if we have a conversation about where technology is taking us in a broader um, context that we can say, do we want to be part of that or not part of that? And that's a yes. legitimate thing to say. Um, it is a legitimate thing to say that the government should um, put limits around the way technology companies operate and make their vast wealth. It's legitimate to say as a consumer, you know, my bank, I don't want you taking every interaction and on selling it or trying to find a way of flogging me more stuff. And it's okay from time to time just to say, I don't need to know what's going on on my own phone or, you know, turn it off for a little while and sort of walk around the block. So, and these all seem like quite mm. radical ideas at the moment that we've got to be totally connected all the time, that we've got no power as consumers and as citizens, it's all inevitable. You uh, build on uh, a whole uh, suite of books that have been come out in recent mm. years with titles like uh, iGen and uh, talking about the distracting influ influence of technology. Uh, one of your other my other, other favourite survey results of yours is that 50% of us check our phones before getting out of bed, 20% of us admit to using our phones while driving. Uh, what are the te some techniques we can use to uh, to uh, switch off a little from these technologies that are designed to be addictive. I think you had the answer there, switch off. So it's a really difficult thing to do at times, isn't it? So end of the day, you go for a walk with the dog and you've got to listen to another podcast because there's so much good stuff out there. You've got to listen to Andrew's podcast, right? <laughs> and it's interesting, turning off and just leaving the phone at home for an hour and just walking with your own thoughts, again, sounds like a really radical thing, mm. you know? Sounds a bit like praying or something, you know, or going to church. Like, you, I think there's even apps for that now, though. But, like, conscious... So, and I, I think one of the interesting things is that we've, we've got a consciousness of what healthy eating is. I think we've got a consciousness that we don't... It's not great to drink and smoke. Mm. Probably not gamble either. But we haven't even got a language about what a healthy digital life looks like. So how can we be expected... Like, is it don't turn it on until you've been up for half an hour? Or, like, and so... No one's going to do that because there's no business model in getting mm, people to switch mm. off. So we've got to sort of create that ourselves and get things that work for us. But we're, we're grown-ups and we've got to do it by example because if our kids see us spending it the whole time looking into the black mirror, then, of course, you know, that's the, the most exciting show in town. 
and the extent to which it's sort of pervaded our, our society, I think, is pretty extraordinary. There's a lovely series of photos called Removed, which are photos of Americans, uh, but with the phone photoshopped out, uh, and some really poignant shots, like a, a newlywed couple uh, just standing there staring at their hands. Um, I'm reminded of one of the other statistics, which I don't think is in your book, which is that one in ten Americans confess to having checked their phone during sex. Um, it seems... We haven't surveyed that yet in Australia. So there you go, there you go. More... Uh, see whether we're, uh, we're worse or better than the Americans. But... Um, uh, you know, there does seem to be a set of cultural norms, as you say, that we could develop. Um, my Jewish friends seem to do quite well out of this, at least because one day a week they have a religious reason not to, not to check their phones. Uh, are you in favour of a, a digital Sabbath or some more? I reckon sort of that's a great start. I think that it starts with being conscious of when you are on it and when you are particularly... I think everyone should have a rule that if you're in a face-to-face -face conversation, you keep your phone in your pocket. Mm. I hate it when you're there and then you find yourself doing it as well. Like, the buzz is always going off, so you've just got to turn it off for a little while. Um, but it is just being conscious that it, you know, it is so good. It is so good to feel connected. It is so good to feel that other people are reacting to your smart-ass comments on Twitter or liking your photos or it's so good to know that Trump's done something stupid again and it's coming through the newsfeed. <laughs> but none of it actually... Like, it, it all just becomes so much that there is no room for reflection or thought. And so, I don't know, it almost sounds like you... We need a, a spiritual revival, which isn't as silly as it sounds because this technology is... The way I'm observing it is it is taking us down the path of being consumers. It sees us through what we do online mm. and it tries to take us to things that will shape our behaviour so that they can either sell ads to target us or take us down certain paths. So the only radical act there is to not allow them to treat you, and I know I'm sounding paranoid now, not allow yourself to just be defined by your interaction with your technology, which is the interaction of a, a consumer, and start acting like a citizen again. Mm. And a citizen mm. knows what their neighbours are doing, they take an interest in politics, they, they find ways of seeking out the truth, and they do that, I think, a lot more effectively with their phone off rather than on. And there's certainly some historical parallels there in the uh, religious movements that respond directly to the Industrial Revolution and to the impact that that has mm. on, on human life. Well, what about as a, as a parent? Uh, you're the parent of teenagers. Uh, uh, how, do, how do they deal with technology? Uh, how do you help them better manage technology as somebody who is one of Australia's leading experts in this field. Uh... <laughs> so can I just say I'm not an expert on any of this. This has been purely <laughs> a book about my observations on the way the world has changed. I am totally inadequate as a parent in dealing with it. I've got a 15-year-old daughter who manages her way through the social media world, I think, with some clarity. Um, but also, like, even a good student, they are totally jumping from one thing to another and mm. it's really hard to stand still. I've got a 12-year-old son who's being totally worked over by this game called Fortnite, which has all the attributes of a hardcore drug. It fills you up with sensory overload and it leaves you feeling really empty when you're away from it. And I don't know how that's allowed kids are allowed access to it. There's been no clinical trials of what it's doing to kids. And if you talk to parents who have got kids in their young teenage years, 
this is the number one issue that they're dealing with, how to help their mm. kids moderate their um, their interactions with technology. And I think it's I think it's going to become a retail po political issue before too long, and it's something that policymakers need to take responsibility for because we won't let our kids into pubs and we won't let them into gambling dens, but they're being... They're just being worked in this little environment and no-one's really been watching it and it's sort of all sort of coming coming to attention now. It's a bit like, I think, for me... And mm -hmm. it's, it's, a, it's, it's not the same analogy, but, you know, after the first... 30 or 40 years of the Industrial Revolution, they realised kids were working in factories and down coal mines and the government said, we can't do that. And, and out of that sort of consciousness, you know, you got the factory acts and you got the rise of unions and co-ops and, as you say, sort of, mm. you know, schools but that were, everyone needed to go to. So there, we, we have a history where a big technological change leads to a correction and, and, a, and a taking of pause and it feels like we're reaching that moment of, you know, probably not 30, 40 years, half that time. Uh, you quote uh, Wired editor Chris Anderson uh, saying that in a spectrum between candy and crack cocaine that uh, these devices are closer to crack than candy. Uh, do you hold to that view? Absolutely, and the, and the insidious part, particularly the way that the you know, education authorities have um, rolled out connected learning is that kids are given a laptop, it's a bring your own device, at least in New South Wales, you've got a laptop, which has got the world's greatest library and the world's most toxic, you know, drugstore all in the one unit, and you expect them mm. to moderate where they're going and where they're not going. And they've got a better understanding of the technology than parents do. They've got, um, you know, peers that are working with each other, and it's, it's us against the machines, and I feel like we're losing badly there and we're letting our kids down in the process. Uh, the ACCC came out last December with a, an important interim report around uh, digital platforms. Um, you say in the, in the book that you initially celebrated the way in which the web uh, would bring down the power of traditional media outlets. Now you think you were wrong about that. Tell yeah. us about that and I think that's a shift in views. So I think that's a broader um, statement that the, the whole nature, nature of the web was that the old hierarchies would be flattened and collapse and, you know that radical collaborative alternative seemed fantastic. For me, I'd seen the way working inside the media, particularly that um, the, the whole news industry had kind of lost its sense of purpose. Um, it was, you know, you had the, ri the rise of News Limited, the weakening of the ABC, um, even before the internet came in. Um, I thought that as a political activist and someone working in politics, being able to tell, and everyone says it online, tell your own stories would be this transformative thing as if the world needs more stories. Uh, I think what I lost was that if you're mm. just talking to your own people, you actually do create the echo chambers. It means that there's a lot of people that agree with you very deeply, but they're all the same people speaking in the same bubbles. And what we lost with the collapse of the traditional media or what we're losing with the collapse of the traditional media is the notion of a public square where we can manage our differences and respect um, other views. And I just don't see that existing to the extent that it has in the past. And I think that leaves a hole in our democracy, which means that an election can be fought on a whole bunch of untruths and fake news, which means you don't end up being assistant treasurer. Instead, you've got to do a <laughs> crappy gig like this. I'd still be here if I was assistant treasurer. But yes, uh, 
It is interesting. We now, just in the last year or two, passed the point at which the total value of digital advertising exceeds print, radio and TV combined, and the extent to which that can be narrowcast, and you can be getting particularly hate-filled, malicious uh, and just inaccurate messages out and through those channels. But do you know, like, because we run political campaigns and we've shifted all our media spend to these platforms, and you can target, not you can not just say, I want to find, um, you know, middle-aged women in Belconnen who have liked something about education and target just people like that because they're capturing all the activity. You can give them a spreadsheet of your existing supporters and say, go out and find people that look like that from their behaviour. Mm. And so, you know, it's a really potent tool, but, you know, I think the... And everyone's ticked the box to say you can do all this, um, but it just does create a series of really targeted conversations that may be, you know, rooted on facts, may mm. not be, um, but no-one's going out into this broader... Um, public space where ideas are exchanged anymore, except for the people in this room. It's amazing that Canberra is probably a little bit more civic than most other places it in is, Australia. It is, it is. Highest levels of social capital, highest volunteering, highest donating, and lowest levels of littering, according to the Clean Up Australia <laughs> survey. Uh, and of course, the highest attendance at Colin Steele's book events. Um, <laughs> you say at the end that you've been reconnecting with the magic of the web's possibility. Uh, and you do tell this, this lovely tale near the end of the book about uh, Adelaide pastor Brad Chilcott mm. and how he's used technology to help with the Welcome to Australia uh, movement to welcome refugees. Uh, tell us about some of the positive potential you see in the te in technologies. I think there is amazing opportunities if we have a starting point of do we have a purpose and what are we trying to do here? Are we just trying to sit here and feel good about ourselves or are we trying to do something with the technology? And Brad's created this amazing national movement that invites refugees into um, homes to have a meal as a way of building empathy and breaking down bridges. And he organises it tightly on Facebook because it's the most potent tool for reaching out across communities. And so when I was talking to him about the book, he was saying, don't it's not the technology that you've got to go after, it's the way that we use the technology. And, mm. it, it, and it, it does actually come back to us. And all the theories of um, networks are all about how hu it's got to be um, powered by human energy. And it's just thinking through, so how am I going to spend my energy and how am I going to use this technology <coughs> for a broader purpose rather than just sit here and sit back as a consumer? Because if you just want to feel comfortable... It's a great tool um, and it's, you know, you can sit a whole night and just sort of go through all your social media feeds and click things and like things and whoop-de-doo and do the same thing tomorrow. But all you're doing is creating more of a resource to these big global companies that don't really have your interests at heart. So how do we shift all that? And mm. it's through little acts mm. of resistance, I think. And uh, with a keen sense of irony, you uh, say at the end of the book that people can continue the conversation with you <laughs> online. Uh, if they want to, want to be able to do that, where do they go? I've just set up a little website called Webtopia Book where I'm going to run a little blog and if anyone's got ideas after reading and they want to share any reflections. I, I don't know where this goes. I do know that um, the idea of changing the way we look at technology, and I think it's a, a simple shift, 
if you go from a mindset that goes everything new is a self-evident good to saying it could be good, it could be bad, it's just an amoral technology and it's based on decisions, from there flows, so what are those decisions mm. and what is the role for government, what is the role for organisations and what is the role for us? And just if this contributes anything apart from a series of stories about people that have gone through this amazing change that no one could have guessed at the start of the journey, it's just what are those things that we can do to shape the way the world's changing before it just rolls over the top of us? Please join me in thanking Peter Lewis. <laughs>